I don't know. I've never been in a gay bar. I'm just just going You've off what I've seen in TV. Gay bar? No, I haven't. Oh my god, we have to talk about that. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. And Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. And on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, before we get into announcing our topic and segment for today, we do have a special announcement right at the top of the show. We're getting ready to launch our very first virtual Intersections meeting. And if you don't know what Intersections is, Intersections is a brave space for those of you that have grown up in conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist circles and are still in the midst of processing through all of that. We thank you so much for listening to the show, but we also understand that sometimes you just need to have real conversations with people. It'll be a six-week curated gathering that will be facilitated by our very own Bonnie, Casey, and Alan, and it'll be starting on Thursday, October 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and it'll go through November 12th, so six Thursdays in a row. If you are interested in this, we have information in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 175, but we've also created a page on our website. If you go to irenicast.com slash intersections. You can also go there to get some information as well as register. Registration opens this coming Wednesday, September 16th. So you can go to this page and then there's a button at the bottom to click and register. There is a cost involved. The cost is $120 for the entire six weeks. And we're hoping to do more of these. So again, uh, for all the information, go to irenicast.com slash intersections. And hopefully we will see you See you there. So let's go ahead and uh, turn our attention towards this week's episode. We are we're doing a first. We are taking first of all, we're taking a listener suggestion by uh, one of our listeners, Lisa. Thank you so much for writing in. And we are going to be revisiting episode 59. So here's a brief history of the show. If you are a new or fairly new listener, this is as, as we speak, you know, we're in the hundred something episodes of this particular show. And it started with three of us, myself, Alan, who this week is on assignment, and our co-host Mona, who later we revealed to be Melody. She was using a pseudonym. Anyway, uh, so for 100 episodes, we it was the three of us that were doing this show. And uh, at one point, due to many circumstances, um, we took a nine-month break, and then we returned, and it was just Alan and I. And while Alan and I were starting this particular show or why we were restarting the show, we were kind of rediscovering what it was going to be without Mona because she was an important part of what was happening. And uh, during that time, Alan was working in a a new church in a new area and the heavens opened up, light beamed from the sky and a song from the heavens was singing Bonnie Rajiv Casey. And lo and behold, we were blessed with uh, uh, Bonnie, Casey, and Rajiv as part of Irenicast. And that's a long story that we've gone through on several other occasions. But um, this is a good thing because we're revisiting an episode that, you know, Rajiv, Bonnie, and Casey were not a part of initially. And we are going – they've listened to the old episode. I've listened to the old episode. We've linked it in the show notes. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and listen to that ahead of time and get our old perspectives and you can kind of get there now. But – All that to say, we have many of you that discover the show and you go back and you listen to 
a lot of the stuff that's happening. Uh, and uh, our list listener in particular, Lisa said in, in regard to this episode, the, in regard to the former episode, episode 59, which is why did Jesus die standing at the foot of atonement theology? She says, this episode was really enlightening. For some reason, I've had a hard time grappling with atonement, even where I'm coming from, and it's so good to listen to this. I related to Alan's background. I realized I come from a tradition of, quote, needing God to die to forgive the world. I've never heard it described quite this way before as a way to highlight nonviolence, peace as nonviolent action in the world. It is such a powerful message. It made me cry. Thank you, Lisa. That's very kind of you. Uh, I'd love to hear you guys discuss this topic along with Bonnie, Rajiv, and Casey. And in light of the things happening in our world today, I feel like this is a great topic to revisit. And we do not disagree, Lisa, which is why here we are in front of our microphones ready to do this particular episode. And to honor the original episode, we will also be doing the segment from that episode called Sort of Categories. And uh, that's also a fun one as well. So without any further ado, let's get into it. What were your thoughts about this particular episode? Is there anything that stood out to you as you, you re-listened to it as kind of a, a base for as we move on, move, move on in this particular conversation? Well, I think that, uh, so one of the joys of uh, resurrection is that we get to look different, right? I mean, that is sort of when we talk about the whole arc um, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, um, we all uh, are transfigured. We are all resurrected. We all have these moments of change. Um, and what I was saying to these guys is how, for me, hearing our brother Alan in his own progression of faith and how cool it was to hear how far he's come. And I think it's a reminder for all of us that um, that this is a journey, that we lean into the mystery, um, and that in leaning into the mystery, we will always be transformed, and we may look a lot different than uh, than when we started the journey. Yeah, I, that's what I would say to that. That's a pastoral response, Rajiv, to what I said. No, that, that that's that, that's great, because evolution of our own spiritual journeys is a big part of what all of us share as friends and uh, undergirds our own spiritual ethos. I thought the conversation was really good, given the context that Jeff, Mona, and Alan were coming from. I thought there was, it took a lot of courage to to broach that sort of stuff. And you know, there were there were pieces that I I'm looking forward to talking to today that weren't included in the conversation then, because that's how conversations work. And uh, just a shout out to Lisa too for sending us that email because this this is a really important topic to talk about from time to time. I, I um, really enjoyed listening to the episode, actually. It was a, a really wonderful conversation about, I think it touched on many of the traditional ideas around atonement, the various ways throughout history, the doctrine of atonement has been used and applied and the impact that it's had on American evangelical Christians. I know on the show, we've talked about our own personal traumas around atonement, but we've just danced around it. You know, we haven't really really like taking a deep dive into the impact that an atonement doctrine, like a substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for each one's individual sins. And without Christ, there is no salvation without that blood of Jesus. There is no salvation. The impact that that kind of message has on a person, especially a young child, which for some of us, that's, that is, has been our experience growing up or as a teenager who may be wrestling with, um, like just 
internal struggles around um, sinfulness. So I'm sort of excited about having this conversation because for a long time now, I've been wanting to talk about sin. (laughs) I don't think we can talk about atonement without talking about sin. And what is sin? What does it mean? And certainly in the world today, it's pretty hard from wherever you come and from whatever viewpoint it is that you're you're looking um, out from to deny the fact that there's a lot of awful things happening. And whatever term that you you use to describe it, sin, evil, you know, somehow theology has to be able to speak to that. Yeah. I had obviously a very different uh, experience revisiting this particular episode. When I edit these episodes, that's the last time I listen to it. I mean, I just put it out there and that's it. So this is the first time I've gone back and listened to an episode. And this episode was just for context was uh, recorded in. Uh, April 2016. So this was pre-Trump election. This was in the midst of uh, the Republican primaries where it was at that time just a joke that Trump was even running in the first place. And kind of where we landed in that particular episode about how our, our take at that time for atonement theology and why did you know Jesus have to die? What does the cross have to do with you know, where we're going to me is a lot more relevant now. And we'll, we'll get into that as we kind of continue the conversation in terms of where we're landed. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a different, different mode, different place in, in history. And it was just four years ago. Yeah. I, I, in, in terms of the content itself, I don't, I don't know if I have any particular thoughts, but I know that I'm very uh, excited to kind of hear where everyone landed on this particular Thing so I guess but as as we move forward, uh, ultimately we're going to address Lisa's question of what what relevance does atonement theology have? I think that depends upon what atonement theology you hold on to, right? Like we're in the midst of a place right now in history where uh, the the atonement theology that we landed on in that particular episode that I would ninety percent still ascribe to is the idea of uh, a redemption of, of of violence, so to speak, of uh, you know revealing the the corrupt nature of a given system so that it can be changed. And sometimes, unfortunately, horrific events happen. And that's the only way people can see exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Um, And I think that you have that contrast of that particular mode of atonement theology happening within the protests at the same time that this other mode of atonement theology is happening, probably the one that we're all familiar with, where all you need is Jesus. And that's the only thing you need to be saved from this world where you have these groups that are holding quote unquote revival services in the midst of these protests. And you have these, these, (laughs) these literal places where these competing atonement theologies are, uh, (laughs) are battling. I don't know. I don't know. It's like a, like a melee or what's happening there. Um, but so I think, I think it's really interesting in terms of kind of where we are today. So with that being said, uh, Bonnie, you mentioned you can't talk about atonement theology without first talking about sin and what you think of that. So, so let's start there, Bonnie, guide us through kind of that aspect of this as we, and we'll build from there. Yeah. I I think we could just start with the, the, the question now that you have transitioned out of a former understanding of sin or a former theology, where do you land on the question of sin these days? It's all around us. 
Sin is all around <laughs> us. It's the air we breathe. It, <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not the air we breathe. But it, it is. It is everywhere. This I, is I, the air I breathe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the the key difference for me between what I grew up being taught and what I believe now is, I believe sin is behavioral. We do things that are sinful, whereas I was taught our beings were sinful. It didn't matter so much what you did. You, at your core, were sinful. So two two different things. Um, sin exists. We behave badly. We hurt people. I am, I'm more curious or interested in the way we understand sin systemically. If God's heart breaks, you know, I love that sort of language from the evangelicals. If God's heart breaks over our sin, it isn't the minor things that we do. Like, you know, I can't think of a minor one right now, but because uh, I don't do them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, but we do perpetuate in systems of oppression that are sinful. Uh, whiteness is the, is the start, right? The erasure of culture, sexism, homophobia, the ways in which we support systems of sin that, that ultimately kill people. Uh, what I try to focus on is um, how do I uh, untie myself from those systems? How do I become a better ally? How do I make myself more aware of the way in which sin lives in my life? Um, and we're not talking about the minor things, right? We're talking about the ways in which um, whole people groups, whole communities are affected by buying Chick-fil-A or whatever. It's funny you bring up sin, Bonnie, because we did do an episode on Oh yeah. <laughs> Sin in particular. Uh, and you know, in my habit of throwing out particular words, I made the argument in that particular episode that I don't think it's a word that we should use because of the, the baggage that's acu accumulated from it. And that it's such a general statement for things that it prevents us from calling out specific things that need to be called out and changed. And it becomes, a blanket and almost does the opposite, a word that's supposed to have power that's supposed to draw attention to us. But I think it's become such a, um, I don't know. It just adds such a, a lot of word to it, but I I'm, I'm more along the lines with both Rajiv and Casey in terms of what is sin. I think it's just sin. And then to borrow some of your process language, hopefully I'm using it right, but sin distracts us or I don't know if we can ever fully be disconnected from it, but it certainly puts us in a mode to not acknowledge our interconnectivity for whatever reason, whether that's because the, the actions that we do or someone else does or some system does prevents us from fully being aware of ourselves, uh, sends us into mental health crises, sent us in, you know, um, places or systems of violence or uh, economic oppression or whatever, all those addiction. things, addiction, exactly. Um, and that, that ultimately, you know, anything that separates us from that acknowledgement, not even the acknowledgement of our interconnectivity, but to be able to receive the benefits of that interconnectivity, whether it's pushing people away um, because of our pain or our hurt or, you know, all that is kind of where I am with that. Yeah. I think um, most process theologians would say sin is uh, anything that limits the possibilities for co-flourishing, mm -hmm. something like that, you know, in, in one form or another. Whitehead calls, he doesn't say a lot about evil, but he says loss is evil, which I think is really interesting. And it's probably for a different conversation uh, to sort of delve into what all of that's about. But yeah, anything that, you know, prevents not just you, 
but the whole network of connections from well-being, anything that limits that is sin. And that resonates with me, but it's really complicated then to make decisions. It's not an easy, like black and white issue. It's interesting to use those terms because of the world that we live in and and the racially charged language of black and white. But I think using black and white as a binary is in itself probably not really helping us to to co-flourish. So those are the kinds of things to consider when we are thinking about sin. So with that definition, Bonnie of sin, what does that have to do with the cross, the death of Jesus? Like, then where do you make that connection and why is it important or is it important at all? I think that the cross has nothing to do with atonement theology. Oh, dang. I think it needs to be completely ripped out of atonement theology and should have been a long time ago ripped out of atonement theology. Yep. I think the cross, I think that the the conclusion that you all came to in that episode, previous episode, the cross as a as a um, horrific reminder of violence in the world and uh, the innocents that die every day because of violence in the world, because of, of systems that are supported by violence, which creates fear, which is an in- incredibly controlling emotional for is exactly what the cross is about. You know, James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, I commend that to everyone. If you need to, if Black Lives Matter movement, if you'd like to read a theological book that helps to support what I think the Black Lives Matter movement is is about and is trying to promote, um, James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree is a great example. And, and that book in and of itself takes the cross out of atonement theology in many ways. But by removing the cross, I don't think it means that we drop atonement. I think atonement is incredibly important in the world today. It's the only thing, I think, that helps us to heal the wounds of limiting one another's potential for co-flourishing. There's a lot there that I have uh, questions on, but let's, uh, Casey, Roshi, any any additional thoughts to go along with that? Yeah, I, I think Bonnie's opening words around co-flourishing is a really great way to frame sin, and and that resonates deeply with me as well. And and those things happen. You know, we talk about microaggressions in a lot of circles. Microaggressions are sin. You know, it's it's not something that you need to be jailed for, of course. But those things over time have a really damaging effect on people. And and those are all things we're we're guilty of, I mean, to use other loaded language. And and part of this movement towards be to being more conscious of how we talk to one another, how we think about one another, we're changing language to be more inclusive of all people. Uh, those are really important things. And to not to know that those things exist and not be affirming of others and engaging in micro or macro aggressions is, is sinful. And that inhibits the flourishing of other people and it inhibits 
the flourishing of the perpetrator. So a part of my master's thesis was on Matthew Shepard. And uh, for those of you that don't know who Matthew, she- Matthew Shepard is, he is a young man who uh, was murdered in 1999 in Wyoming. He hung on a, on a pole, basically, for three days. And people drove by him and uh, bikers rode by him. He had be- been beaten so badly that he looked like a scarecrow. That's what they said. They could not tell that it was a human. And this young man had died because he was gay. He was at a gay bar. And these two men took him out in the middle of the night and and murdered him. And my whole thing around what does it mean to live faithfully? What does it mean to live um, boldly? Um, And what you pay for that. When Jeff asks the question, so what about crucifixion? Um, those early hearers of, of the story of Jesus, those early readers of the scriptures, I believe would have seen these scriptures of this is the life in which I am preparing for. Um, to live this life authentically and boldly will lead down the same journey as Jesus. And so there was almost comfort in this promise that if you live faithfully enough, this is what you must prepare for. And for any young queer kid, any young person of color, they receive these stories of if you are going to walk outside your damn door, this is what you can expect. If you just live, you should be prepared to suffer. When I read the story, um, I'm not looking for atonement. <laughs> I am. I am assured that if I live my life to to the fullest uh, capacity in which I can, I should be prepared for persecution. And that's what we see. And as Bonnie was saying, I was thinking of the cross and the lynching tree also. James Cone says, like, lynchings were meant to tell people to stay your ass in line, right? It was a, it was a way to uh, keep people in bondage and fear. That if you step outside of the line um, that we have set, the parameters in which we have defined for you, this is what will happen to you. And we we hear it even now. We hear it in, even in this in in what's happening all around us. If you walk down, we live in a in a county, or at least I do, um, where people are marching uh, and they are being met with major hostility, major scary. And they keep saying, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to record this and remind you that if you come back next week, there are going to be more of us. What do you do? Yeah, Casey, that brings to to mind a book, Call and Consequences by Raquel St. Clair. She's a womanist theologian, and she wants to be really deliberate about delinking physical harm, violence, and oppression from the call and, and walk of discipleship. She's like, suffering isn't the point. Suffering and violence may happen to you, but it's not the point. And where she's coming from is primarily to help black women know that if you're in an abusive relationship, if you're being taken advantage of, that's not what Jesus wants for you. You know, and and so it's it's not a reward. The fact that you're suffering isn't a reward. And I just want to delink that in case there's anybody listening who might be um, struggling with that that line, just know that I think we all clearly say suffering is not the point, but it could happen when you try to overturn systems of power. Right. And I hope that that's not the message that I was relaying. No, uh, no. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, because I I think that that's sort of the point, right? It's like 
this isn't this isn't by your own doing. You're just you're just living your life, honey. You're just being as faithful to you as you possibly can. You are in alignment with God. You are living your best life, and out of that there is consequence potentially, and that's not of your own doing, and you should not accept that. And there should be atonement when suffering is caused. There should be atonement uh, that the perpetrators have to face. And let's not forget, and, and I can attest to this from the way that I've lived my life, is that I've had moments in my life where I had to create an enemy to feel as though when we make when we make punishment or suffering the point of our theology, then we see the results of that with what's happening right now in terms of people who are in power, who are more correlated with the Roman Empire than they are a person of color who is systematically oppressed within their people group crucified on a cross and someone who is more connected to the Roman Empire, the person in power, like myself, a straight white male. That we have to create instances where we are the victims in order to relate with a theology that is damaging. And I don't think that we can uh, not throw that out there because what what Casey's talking about and what many of you relate to is that that's just a byproduct of what's going to happen. Not that's something that God ordained or you're you're not doing your job unless you're persecuted. And therefore, you have to do this self-fulfilling prophecy of being an asshole to everyone to create persecution. So you feel like you're doing the good work of the gospel. Uh, that's not, that's not atonement. That's something that needs to be atoned for. Uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, that's another really great point, Jeff. You know, I think it's important to remember where did, where did these uh, traditional views of atonement that we all inherited, where did they come from? They arose from Western within Western Christianity. Folks don't think about various Christianities across the world don't think about atonement in the same way as Western Christians do. And I think that's really important. Like it's not, it's not like it's a lineage that goes right straight back to Jesus right. in Jesus's um, Jewish life at all. And I, I, I mean, as I look at, at the story, you know, Anselm, who is often credited with sort of crystallizing in, I think it was the 11th century, this atonement doctrine as Jesus's blood, Jesus's sacrifice takes our place. What, what is, what the kind of death experience that is rightfully each individual human's death experience because God's perfection requires this sort of a violent, torturous death in order for forgiveness to be assured. That idea arose from a particular culture. And I mean, you think about, you think about the horror in, in an idea like that. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, Jeff, is that it, it creates immediately right off the bat, it enables the ability to, to have an us and them situation. Those who accept this death as a covering for their sin and then those who don't. And it also glorifies violence in a way it, it like sanctifies violence. It makes violence sacred. It makes violence God's idea. And that, that just feels so blasphemous to me, you know, now in my new understanding of, of who God or what God or 
how God works. The, the reason why this, I, this idea arose in the first place is it came out of a culture where people resist the question, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Where, where do you hurt? Yeah. What hurts you? And, and instead of like actually being able to do any introspection and in answering that question and then collectively working together to heal the hurts that many of us carry, we, we're carrying such similar hurts right now, and yet we're fighting with each other. I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. And I think that this layer of theology that is like, it's so, so useful to the powerful to keep us separated from one another. And all of that is to say, we can reconstruct a different way of looking at the story. One that actually allows us to answer the question that Jesus asked so many times, where does it hurt? Would you like to be healed from that hurt? Yeah. How can I participate in that with you? That's right. And Jesus asks them directly, what is it that is hurting you? Right? There is dignity there. It is to say, you know the hurt that, that you are hurting from. I'm not going to assume, but I'm going to give you the ability to speak for your damn self. And I think atonement theology strips that from us. It doesn't uh, give us the ability to name our hurt. It just is an all for one, right? Jesus covers all the hurt, so I don't have to think about it. I don't have to name it. I don't have to be, I, I can't be healed because I can't name it in the first place. Right. I mean, you go to these evangelical churches and it's all bootstrap philosophy till you come to this. Then, oh, the traditional atonement doctrine, that's okay. It's all good with God. I don't have to deal with my junk. Jesus paid for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's really interesting that you say it that way, Casey, because I never, I never made that connection on how that line of thinking well like you'll see the memes on facebook like it's not a police problem it's not a race problem it's a heart problem and the only thing that can heal that is jesus and how like you saying that really hits home for me how that really robs autonomy and and consent and uh just the your personhood in so many different ways because of you know linking that to what what bonnie's saying about really being able to acknowledge for yourself and how powerful that is in your own journey when you see for yourself the things that you need to be healed from and how we rob people of that. And man, now my head is swimming with all these experiences of people who've come to Christ, quote unquote Christ, uh, because they were told what they need to be hurt, healed of and not given the space to figure it out. I think that that's sort of like, um, you know, Bonnie was talking about violence as sacred, right? Um, and we hear a lot of that messaging. I, I hear it a lot around, well, we just need to, you know, wipe out a few. If we just wipe out a few, then it'll be good for, for the whole. Um, and all of that, all of our thinking is connected to this atonement theology. And what Bonnie has been saying to us all along is that it robs us of the possibilities. When we, ha when we have allowed atonement, by we I mean capital C, evangelical, uh, white Christianity that, that permeates our everywhere, 
We've, we have limited our possibilities to understand what healing can look like, what resurrection can look like. Um, and what we have defaulted to is we have to experience violence, as Rajiv was saying, to make things better. That's our, that's our only option. That's the only, that's the one option. As a little boy, my dad would say, if someone talks, you know, smack to you, you punch him in the face. You solve this with violence. Yeah. I mean, blood, bloodlust has been with us for such a long yeah. time. It, it predates the crucifixion, but we, we cannot seem to actually have real conversations about getting past it. But, but I think it's because what Casey, what you said is right. We're, we're very attached to this atonement theology that, that, um, and I'm so glad you brought out Casey that it's white Christianity. It's in the service of white supremacy, this particular, um, atonement theology and male supremacy. Right. But I mean, how does God solve the problems of in the world? Violence, God, this loving God. I mean, how, how does one reconcile that? You don't need to. God's ways are higher than ours. And anytime there's a conflict, <laughs> then we just chalk it up to that and move on. Right. Yes. And if your God's ways, your God's higher ways involve violence, then I say F your God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Agreed. Because even as a mere mortal, <laughs> in my very limited capacity of knowing what love is, if there is a some transcendent love, which I believe there is, in my very tiny ability to be able to tap into what that love might be like and channel it in my life, even I can see how wrong that is. You know, young a young child probably even understands how wrong that is, even more so because the world hasn't had, had its way with young children as much as it has with adults. Violence, if if violence is the answer, then you can see why we continue to be at war, why we continue to support our military budget more than anything else, more than anything that actually helps us heal those wounds that um, (laughs) we talk about needing healed. Military and police budgets, you know, that those funds could be redistributed so easily and effectively to promote co-flourishing rather than violence as a response. Because, I mean, we know violence is not a solution. Well, I mean, some of us. No, even, I mean, generals. I, I through, through uh, someone who married into our family, they're a major military family. And I've, I've been in rooms where there's high-ranking military folks in the room. And they hate war. They they don't want to go to war. You know, they know violence is not the answer. You know, they recognize sometimes, if, again, this is a particular framework, that you have to have a military response. Again, that's a particular framework. But they are not fond of it, and they don't claim for one second that violent warfare, active warfare, is any kind of solution. Well, I think it's a spectrum, right? Because they're the ones, the further you are away from the actual violence, the easier it is to make it a necessity. So people that are building bombs, people that are sitting in halls of Congress, people that are sitting in offices signing pieces of paper, it's easy for them to say, well, I looked at this bottom line and we need to go in and attack them because they are not directly related to the, the front line. 
The shareholders need to get paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Sin. Sin with right. a capital S. And I think that directly relates to what we were talking about earlier is people who are void of suffering in their life and have a lot of privilege to assume to speak to suffering in the core of their theology. It's skewed. It's the equivalent of that person in a desk signing the paper and not really understanding the full consequences of it. I do think that, you know, at this point in our history, if, if we were all to pay, generationally speaking, for the suffering that has been caused or was caused in the world at, at our hands, and I'm particularly I'm speaking probably to white people and the hands of our ancestors, like how, how do you atone for that? It is a simple resolution to just say, well, Jesus covered it all, you know, like it, it for, for a few moments, boy, it feels like, phew, okay, you know, I can, then I will now dedicate my life to this particular path of Christianity and know that all of those sins that I have, have been involved in or my ancestors have been involved in are, are uh, absolved by that one death that happened 2000 years ago, you can see the attraction in it. Right. I wonder if, if we've, uh, we've conflated, uh, uh, atonement and forgiveness or absolution because atonement to me seems like the process. Like how do we atone for that? I think entering into the, the place of atonement, there's an acknowledgement that reconciliation may not happen in this situation. Like nothing can undo what was done. I'm merely seeking to acknowledge that it was done and to the best of my ability or the resources that I have s- try to relevel the playing field for whatever that caused. And I think that we, you know, we don't, we don't have any connection from the way that we deal with atonement on an individual basis. If I wrong someone and how we do it on a systemic basis when it's an institution, you know, when we sit and we talk about reparations for slavery, I mean, yeah. We're implicit for that. Our our economic success early on as a country is, is a direct result of that. Uh, so, and to say that, well, what's done is done is not an acknowledgement. And I know that, you know, these are hard, difficult questions. And when you enter into atonement, you can't, there is no simple answer. Each circumstance, each quote sin or wrong that is done has cultural context to it, has personal motivations connected to it, has sometimes generations connected to it. And how do you begin to, you know, undo those things? You have to be ready to enter into that as messy as it is and recognize that you're not, you're probably not going to come up with a perfect solution. And how, how, how are you, how do you become okay with that? It's hard. But I think it's easier if you read the story in a different lens, you know? I think, like, if you begin to, it's, it's hard, but you have to unbind yourself from the stuff that, that got you to where you were in the first place. Um, and when you begin to read that story in a different light, it prompts you to do different things, right? It prompts you to live your life differently. If you get to Good Friday and then Jesus dies and you get, and then you move to Easter and then you say, Oh, thank God. Um, oh, we, we stand and wave our hands and sing, Oh, the wonderful cross, you know, bid me come and die that I may find that I might truly live. That's crazy. What should happen on Good Friday 
is your res- your response has to change to being mortified and to wonder about all the places around you where where Christ is still being crucified and mothers are still burying their children and beckoning you to look upon the cross in wonder and disgust your response changes Absolutely. Instead of kneeling before a cross, venerating the violence on the cross as being one's personal salvation, instead you yell at the cross on Good Friday, not one more. That's right. I will not let one more death like this happen. That's right. And um, I, I serve a teacher, a master, a Lord, whatever word works for you, that helped the world to see how awful this is. And I will not under under my watch let this happen again. When they when the soldiers say, "Do you know this man?" What is your response? Well, I I think one thing that's really important in relation to the foot of the cross is grief and grieving, both individual and communal grief and grieving, and you know our our all the other things that you've talked about are right, but if when we repeatedly skip over healthy grief acknowledging it, participating in it, um, et cetera. And, and then we just find ourselves right back to where we've been the whole time. I think that's the missing piece. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, Jesus, even before he was arrested, right. How he spent that his own personal grief, how he spent that time and he asked his friends to watch with him and stay with him. He was essentially, I think saying that it hurts. It hurts. You can take this from me, right? You can. I'd be. I'd be happy to not bear this. Yes, and um, and how his friends, I think, were so disconnected, maybe from their own question of where does it hurt, that they they just were like, oh, what? Do, what? How can I get out of this? Well, sleep is a good way. I mean, there are millions of ways to no, do they it. They were drunk, Bonnie. They were okay. Wasted. Whatever. Their their uh, their choice. Their um, avoidance method of choice, which we all have, right? Um, was sleep in that moment. And, and Jesus like invited them multiple times into the grief with him multiple times. Just stay with me, stay with me. And I do think that's exactly part of what Good Friday is about, because if you stay there long enough to feel where it hurts, then you feel the power that comes from the cross that helps you to work so that it doesn't ever happen again. That's right. And when you don't stay, you lash out and cut people's ears off. Yes. Because that wounds, those wounds, as soon as they get poked, are going to just wound somebody else, right? Hurt people, hurt people. Yep. Wow. This is, this ended up <laughs> this being a very turned, yeah. powerful conversation. <laughs> <laughs> See, we need to revisit so, some more episodes. <laughs> so, what is an atonement theology for our times? All of us are theological—I don't know—evolvers, whatever you want to call it, movers, shakers, doers. How would we uh, describe atonement today? I, I think. One of the things, would, that from my perspective, one, to delink it from the traditional atonement is you're not, your being isn't sinful. We might do some stupid shit, but your being isn't sinful. And some of us do some really horrendous stuff to, to other people and the planet. 
two is the cross. The cross really had nothing to do with atonement, like Bonnie said earlier. Jesus, like the question, why did Jesus have to die? Well, when you're fully human, death is inevitable. So Jesus was going to die. It was horrible how he died. It was an unjust sanctioned murder by the state at the time. So that's that's what that is. And and then what's left is an atonement theology is like, let's begin to examine how we participate in life with one another. What's contributing to co-flourishing? What's not? The things we've done in the past, let's do our best to make them right. Not going to fix them all, but do your best to make them right. Acknowledge and act. And then the rest of us engage in some forgiveness for God's sake. You know, recognize, you know what, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, um, sibling, you can't make everything that you did wrong right. It's not possible. Do the best you can and we'll forgive you the rest. We'll walk with you. We'll carry you. And 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 so we can move forward. So that, that would be my atonement theology. Now, don't ask me to do this with Donald Trump just yet. Because I don't know if I could walk with that brother, no matter how contrite he was. But, um, you know, it's easy to say, but hard to do. But that, that for me, is how I think it could take shape, um, along with a healthy, healthy dose of good and healthy grieving in, in the mix. Jeff, you don't, go, you don't get to go last. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I, th- I think... I land similar to where I landed last time. I mean, in the, the, the previous conversation, it really, it was more of like the, the large picture. And I think that my evolution since then is not necessarily that I believe differently about atonement theology, but that I realized the, how much bigger of a thing it is where I think, you know, it's, it's our story. Right. Like we, we live our lives. We recognize when we do something wrong. And if we just go about righting our wrongs, but going back to what Casey said earlier, but we don't stop and think, well, why did I do that wrong in the first place? And that we don't take into a context the, the entirety of our journey. And then we don't look forward enough to see how that intersects with other people's journeys and the journeys of the systems and the things around us. You know, if it was written on a, a whiteboard, it would be as confusing as hell, you know, because our Venn diagram intersects with so many other different things. And I think personally, when I think of the idea of atonement theology and enacting it in my life is recognizing that I can only worry about my circle. I can only do that. Because my, my heart breaks and my, you know, I shut down when I say, well, what about that circle? We can change that circle. Um, but the only thing I can do is change my circle. And then when someone intersects with my circle, then I have the opportunity to begin to reach out and do that. And it's confusing and it's hard. And sometimes multiple circles are intersecting my circle at the same time. And I don't know which one to prioritize and I don't know what's going on. It really, it's just the bottom line is that recognizing that every decision I make has ripples and that doesn't have to be, it used to be a stressful thought that every decision I had, I made had the weight of the world on my shoulders, because if I do this, then this will happen. But if I didn't do this, then this would have happened. 
but it's just an acknowledgement that my decisions aren't in a bubble and that I have to acknowledge how it connects with other people. And, um, I think that if we applied that sort of lens to the way that we approach politics, to the way that we approach biblical interpretation, to the way that we approach our relationships to recognize that, oh, there's other circles happening here. But what I've done is I've taken this, you know, and I've put it into this place right here. And I think that theologically, we've done the equivalent of a Fox News correspondent telling an athlete to shut the hell up and not speak about Black Lives Matter because they're just an athlete and they're going to entertain, disregarding the fact that they're a person of color and that they grew up in a lot of these systems and did all that kind of stuff that we that we're all this like monolith and our station in life is set. So yeah, I know that's feel felt rambling, but that's kind of where I am with that. For three years, Jesus wandered around the hillside of Galilee, right? Listening to people, encountering people who lived at the periphery of society, who were not welcome in the temple, who were not welcome in synagogues because of their uncleanliness. Uncleanliness was basically anybody but Jewish men, <laughs> um, because even women could not uh, be clean all the time, right? So this was about money and power and patriarchy. And I believe that Jesus understood that for his message to go farther, for him to expand this message of of love and kindness, to heal the wounds of a system that was leaving everybody outside, basically, because you couldn't enter into holiness without all of these rituals, he knew that he had to go to Jerusalem, and he shows up and riots, right, and protests. He shuts the streets down, he he topples tables in the temple, and Jesus was well aware that in doing that, it would require something of him. What Jesus is hoping to do is remove the barrier of power and privilege and money to encountering the divine and encountering yourself, right? I tell you, woman, there will never be a day, uh, there will come a day when you do not have to uh, worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but God longs for spirit and truth. And so Jesus is crucified because he's living his best life. He's telling the truth. People are threatened by his message. Jesus is threatening the economic uh, system um, that that promotes the, the, the temple. Jesus is uh, threatening male-dominant society. They crucify him. Uh, or what we what we should not be looking for is for that man hanging on a cross to atone for us. What we have to do is look upon this man who has been murdered and wonder about every time that one of God's children is murdered at our hands because uh, we continue to miss the point. We continue to fail to see that this is not about institutions. This is not about getting it right. This is not about living into the boxes that someone has set out for us. This is about spirit and truth. And so for me, like when I think about this, I am, um, I, I avoid atonement theology so much, um, because I, beca because it's super triggering. Um, but if there is anything that we want to talk, if we want to atone or if we, if that has to be included in our, in our theology, where it should reside is in this place of looking for the next crucifixion and being and and being available to to stand at the cross and say i know that person 
I will stand with them. And as Bonnie said earlier, and I will fight for a day that this never has to happen again. Yes. Beautiful, Casey. Thank you. I think that once you take the cross out of atonement theology, it helps so much. Yeah. You know, like, first of all, just like, let that go. So I do think there are things that we can let go of. And the cross and atonement theology should never have put to, been put together. The way I understand atonement, the English word that I think it made its um, debut in the King James Bible is it, it means at one mint, right? To, to um, in other words, to make whole. Hmm. And I see a need, a desperate need for a pathway towards wholeness as a whole collective of creatures, the planet, people, everybody, everything. So I had the privilege of being on a clergy call with uh, civil rights leader, Ruby Sales, who is just an amazing voice, um, has done amazing work all her life, but particularly powerful voice in this moment for, for me personally. She says, basically, detach from empire Christianity. If we want atonement at one mint, if we, if we want a path towards wholeness, all of God's people, detach from empire Christianity, understand how that atonement doctrine served empire Christianity and mm-hmm. detach from it. Let it go. It doesn't serve us, our co-flourishing whatsoever. And then she, uh, she and Rajiv must have had some kind of like telepathic communication because she came up with a bunch of R's like as a path. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> towards the to- She didn't use atonement, but she said towards wholeness, which I believe is exactly what atonement is. It's, it's a, a journey towards wholeness. She also, uh, yeah, kind of like scolded white people for the ways in which we who like to describe ourselves as woke, which she said, there's no such thing as woke. There's only awakening that we are continuing to perpetuate whiteness by once we get to a place where we can say Black Lives Matter, we are distancing ourselves from all of our brothers and sisters who aren't there yet. So it's like we there we still have an us and them mentality and we're using these ideas of who's pure and who's impure instead of staying in the messy relational work of atonement and which is you know very a white sort of atonement idea is uh, um some of us are saved and some of us aren't mm-hmm. um we've just changed those definitions but we're still keeping the structure in place <laughs> so it was ow, like stop okay it. Ow. <laughs> ow this hurts yeah. but i thought that was that was also helpful yeah. yeah but here are her r's and she has six of them recapit recapitulation reconciliation redemption then reparation, restora- restoration, and finally resurrection as a new whole collective body. I thought that was so powerful. And I think it really is almost a linear, you know, of course, it's spirally, but in many ways, it really, you do this and then you do this and then you do this. So it's sort of a formula, I think. Recapitulation reconciliation 
redemption comes from that, then after you get there, and I think Rajiv was really clear about this in a previous episode, after you go through that, then you talk about reparation. After reparation, we experience restoration and finally resurrection. Resurrection as a co-flourishing body where each member of the body cares about the co-flourishing of every other member of the body and works toward it. I thought that was like so powerful. So that's, that's what I have to offer. And um, thank you, Ruby Sales, for all of those insights. That's the one to go out on. Uh, uh, I would say that atonement theology has officially been revisited and we can uh, <laughs> mark that off of our checklist and we would love to hear from you. So if you're listening to this conversation and you have thoughts and you would like to add your voice to this conversation, you can comment in the show notes at irenicasta.com slash 175. And don't forget there, you can find all the ways you can like, follow, and contact the show, in addition to some more information on intersections that we talked about at the top of the show. So make sure you check out the show notes. And of course, as usual, we will be continuing this conversation on Facebook and YouTube Live this coming Monday, uh, September 21st at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You can always join us then. Or if you'd like to get your thoughts on that particular conversation, you can email us ahead of time at podcast at ironicast.com and give us some of your thoughts on this conversation on atonement so on the other side of the music we're going to be i think this is the first time we've played this since you all have joined the show and we're almost like 78 episodes in or whatever um but it's called sorta categories and we are going to be playing on the other side of music categories. How this works is that each host has come up with a category. For instance, if you listen to episode 159, then you'll notice that one of the categories was things in a junk drawer. And then I, then you would present a letter that start with the letter M. And then the other hosts will have to go round and round coming up with something that would be found in a junk drawer, starting with the letter M. And then once someone cannot think of it, they're out. And then it's down to the remaining two co-hosts. And then we're going for the last person standing in each round. And uh, I don't know if we'll keep score because Alan's not here. So I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> um, but so then we'll see who, who wins. So I will, I'll go ahead and start this one. Usually I go last, but I'll go ahead and start since the first time we've all played this one together. And uh, I've been inspired for those of you that are just listening well, that, that would be everyone <laughs> listening to our podcast right now. Uh, Rajiv has had a wonderful background in his uh, Zoom feed for, I don't know, the last several weeks from a Netflix show called Kim's Convenience, correct? So that's the show called? Yeah. Yep. Watch it. Great show. So I've been inspired by that. And my things are things found in the convenience store. So i.e. 7-Eleven, uh, you know, Circle K, whatever, uh, that start with an S. And we'll go Rajiv, Casey, Bonnie, and we'll go in that order until there's one person standing. Slutchy. Okay. Um, snacks. Sandwiches. Sugar. Soda. Sleeping pills. 
Sauce. Shampoo. Um, Scissors. Sausage. Soap. Soapy. Slime. Mm. Oh, okay. Like you ever seen the floors in those places? Right. Okay, I got you. I got you. And they and sometimes they have like the quarter machine. That's right with the toy the slime. There you go. Okay. Um, stickers. I haven't picked an easy one. Sprite. Soup. Uh oh, first crack in the the flow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of three thousand in like five minutes. <laughs> I think Alan would say that Bonnie is out. I'm out. I love I'm out. I love I'm self proclaimed out. She's she's, she's uh, <laughs> proclaimed herself out. So now we're down to Casey and Rajiv. Suckers. Snickers. And now we're getting into candy brands. All right. Um, uh, I'm out. I oh, wow. Rajiv pulling out the snapple. He's got more in the, he's got more in the pocket. He's ready to go. <laughs> I picked an easy one. I wanted to get us all comfortable with the process. Thank so, you for that. Jeff. Uh, hopefully yeah. we can uh, get, get a little more difficult as the rounds go on. But otherwise, if, if not, we have, Countless shows ahead of us to do this segment again, if it's something that we enjoy. So who would like to go and present the next category? Yeah, I'll, I'll go next. All right. All right. The category is places you find lint. Places you find lint. And the letter is N. N like Nancy. Navel. Nostrils. Neck. All good answers. I didn't uh, want to say. Don't say. <laughs> <laughs> made it through one round. So it's back around to me, huh? Um, mm-hmm. uh, on your nightstand. I f- found mm-hmm. pieces of lint in that area. Um, nectarines. When they're next to peaches, especially, which happens at our house a lot. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could find lint on a nectarine. Sure. Just say it, Casey. <laughs> he, he, he's trying not to say it. Go ahead. That's... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You put a new pair of swim trunks on. It's all linty up in there. That's right. <laughs> and then I'm out after this because I have nothing. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, just a little north of the border nipples for 500. <laughs> Nikes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> hmm. I think the buzzer went off, man. <sighs> I, you got me. Bonnie's Bonnie, the winner. Bonnie, you win. I do? How did you I did? win? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I lost it after nine. You just, you just <laughs> have a lot of N words. <laughs> have a lot of. Oh. Um. Things that you might find 
at a gay bar that start with C. Well, Casey. Uh, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who's going first, Casey? We'll let you determine. I, will, I, I just, I just did. I will. Oh, Casey. start with my friend Richie. <laughs> I thought you were like <laughs> subtly reprimanding him, like Casey. No, no, Casey. <laughs> okay, <laughs> is something that starts with C that you'd find at a gay bar. <laughs> okay, then I guess <laughs> Rajiv started it. Um, so, so who's next, Casey? <laughs> you, Jeff. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just going to say it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Corkscrews? Yes. Yep. Candles? Yes. Cutlery? Because I would assume you need to to cut the limes and the lemons for the drinks. Okay. Okay. I'll give that to you, Jeff. What did you say, Bonnie? I said Cabernet. That's right. Yep. Can candelabras. Candelabras, yes, I have seen candelabras at a gay bar. Um <laughs> these are some pretty fancy ones that you all are uh, I, w- I would assume at. inevitably there's a a white bachelorette named Courtney that'll work her way into the bar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You don't um, get that one, Jeff. What? You don't get that I one. I don't get that oh, you one. Have to, uh, you have to think deeper. You're, you're out. Okay. I, I don't know. I've never been in a gay bar. I'm just just going You've off. Never what I've been seen to a TV. gay bar. No, I haven't. Oh my god, we have to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Yes, um, you do need to talk. It's my that. turn, right? Yeah. yeah, it's your turn. Chilly stairs. Chilly stairs. Okay. Cool you've stairs. Been, you've been to faces. Yeah. I guess <laughs> For two points, Alex. Candy canes. Candy canes. Yeah, there's. I've been to two different ones where they put candy canes in mixed drinks, certain kinds. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. I was gonna say children, but that's probably not true. No. Um, perpetuate people that who stereotype. Act like children. For sure. <laughs> Obviously, we all need to go on a trip to, to yeah. a gay bar. We'll bring our recorder. We'll do like a podcast. Uh, I got another one. Yes, go but it's still it's still Bonnie's turn. I can't. I think you ever since since okay. Nick grew up. I haven't been to okay. a gay bar. Uh, I was going to say cocaine. Cocaine. Yeah, there is a yep a history of cocaine in gay bars for sure. Yeah. Well, Rajiv, you are the winner. All right. Congratulations, Rishi. Congratulations. Oh, nice. <laughs> what were all the ones we didn't think of, Casey? <laughs> right. We had a ton. Uh, well, certainly there are clothes in a gay bar, contrary oh, to popular belief. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, condoms. Condoms are mm-hmm. in gay bars. Yeah. That's right. Corkscrews. I said that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, you did say that one. That's right. Cool. Cognac. Cognac. That's right. I, I was I was going to go down the drink list next. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right, Bonnie. Okay. Give us so our last round. Mine is. Um, mine should be easy too. Things in the bathroom that start with a T. Who's Who going goes first? first? Um, the Jeff Rajiv Casey. All right. Toothbrush. 
Tampons. Toilets. Tapestries. All good ones. What did you say, Jeff? Tapestries. Hmm. Okay. Toilet paper. Towels. Trinkets. Toothpaste. Tongue cleaner, you know? Yeah. Um, man. Uh, I think I'll win this one. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jeff, you're done. I guess time out. I'm out. (laughs) Trash. Trimmer. Trunks. Toenail clipper. Towel rack. (laughs) Teeth whitener. TV. TV. (laughs) Who has a TV (laughs) in their bathroom? Some people do. Some some people do. I'll give you that one. Technically, your phone is a mini TV, right? Well, telephone. (laughs) Yeah, that was my next one. So you... Um, trap, meaning like the trap in your sink. Oh yeah, Tylenol. Tile. Ooh. Um. <sighs> tweezers. Hmm. Good one. All trail right. mix. Trail mix. There's no trail mix in the back. Casey wins. Between the TV and the the telephone. A little bowl of trail mix next to the toilet. (laughs) That sounds ideal. Yep. Oh. I don't know how anyone eats. I don't know how anyone eats in the bathroom. I've heard a lot of people say that they're snackers, and I'm like, no. Nope. No. Can't do it. Mm mm. Mm mm. Or anything. Like anything. Actually, that was a really fun segment. Yeah, that is fun. It was fun. Hopefully, those of you listening also enjoyed yourself and feel free. <laughs> I'm sure Alan will and be played along to play along. It's a good game along. to play on Zoom with your family and totally. friends, that's right? right? Yep. Yep. I think that's what we'll do next time we do mm-hmm. our family Zoom t- talk. It's good. Oh, we should a do a game. we should do a Rencast game night. It's like invite listeners and just do like a, a some of our segments on Zoom with fun. like. Oh, that totally would be really fun. fun. That would be, be really good. Idea. Could do it like on one of the Monday extravaganzas. Well, let's wait. Yeah, wait till like school gets rolling a little bit and and it gets dark a little earlier. That would be great. Great thing That'd to be a do. Good idea. Like end of September, we can schedule them and have a limit so that you know we're not overwhelmed. And then we charge them. Yeah, <laughs> donation. Charge them to hang out. <laughs> These are our Patreons. <laughs> Patreon. They're, they're not gonna. They're not joining because Bonnie or I are fun. Just so you know, <laughs> we couldn't do that without you guys for sure. <laughs> Actually, I think you're super fun, Casey. I, mm-hmm. I would do anything with you Look, because Bonnie. You're fun. I think you're super fun, but I think you and I both have classified that we don't <laughs> think we're fun. You know, right? Yeah, and you guys. Are, you are the best, Bonnie. You are. You guys are both really fun. No, you are. <laughs> I miss you a lot. There's a weird tone to that. No, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've like you know slept on the floor with a bunch of youth together That's in right. a room, then That's right. it's like a bond for life. That's right. That's very true. I'll never forget that trip with my friend Bonnie. God. 
well, that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoyed the show and would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. And irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. You can also support the show just by simply making sure you've subscribed to the show on whatever app you listen on. If the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. It's your boy, Casey. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is Regine. Thanks for joining the conversation. (laughs) 